All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Power Show, Wednesday, April 6, 2022. It is great to be here with you to study some Torah, and I am excited about today's conversation, today's learning. As always, we have gemstones on the front page, as you can see on Chabad.org, right there. Is there cooking? I don't know, but we got hands on Judaism right here. All right, Torah portion is, again, Mitzorah, Mitzorah. We did the first few readings in which we talked about how the Mitzorah, the one who has Tzorah, gets out of the state of impurity and gets uh, to a state of, of, of purity. And that's how we ended. Actually, those are the first three readings. That's how we got to where we got to, which is reading number four for today. All right. So at this point, we are going to switch gears. The drop, still talking about Tzorah, but not on the person, not on the clothing, but on the homes. And this will open up a really beautiful, hopefully beautiful conversation about silver linings and clouds. So here we go. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, I guess Aaron has to know this because the Kohanim are the ones that have to diagnose the lesion. When you come to the land of Canaan. So this is now. So let me just just pause here for a second. Up until now, we've been talking about forms of tzarat that can afflict the person, wherever they are, the clothing of the person, wherever they are. Now we're talking about tzarat of the homes that apparently, according to the verse, only is possible once the Jewish people enter the land of Israel, formerly known as the land of Canaan. So here we go. When you come to the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession. So here God reiterates his promise to give us the, the, the holy land, the promised land. And God says, and I place a lesion of Tzorat upon a house in the land of your possession. So now what do you do? If the house has Tzorat, and the one to whom the house belongs comes and tells the Kohen, saying, something like a lesion has appeared to me in the house. In other words, I don't know. Something is happening to the walls, to the bricks, to the stones. Something is going on. It looks like a lesion of Tzorat. So what do you do then? First step. Powerful first step. The Kohen shall order that they clear out the house. First things first. Hey, Sarah, welcome. Great to have you here. So the first things first is you clear out the house. You clear out all the furniture, all of the items of the house before the Kohen comes to look at the lesion. This is very important. If you suspect that there is Tzorat on the house, on the home, the first thing you do you call the Kohen. But before the Kohen shows up to your house, you get rid of all your stuff inside. Why? So that everything in the house should not become unclean. In other words, if the Kohen says, oh yeah, you got Sarat, that means everything in the house becomes unclean. So what do you want to do? You want to remove everything out? So when the Kohen says unclean, only the, ho- only the home itself, only the house itself, the stones are impure, but there's nothing inside also that becomes impure. After this, after you move everything out, the Kohen shall come to look at the house. So this is a very critical verse in the order of what you do, the, the, the order of events that you do when it comes to Tzorat of Homes. I also need to mention the following, and it's obvious, but I'm going to mention it anyway. You know, we have a lot of stuff. Today, we have a lot of stuff. The average, I mean, the average homeowner has a lot of stuff in their house. 
furniture and items and kitchenware and pots and pans and like just, just stuff, just stuff. You ever move, right? You pack up your stuff to move. It's a whole, uh, it's a whole parasha. It's a whole, it's a, it's, it's a whole um, experience. You got to pack up. I know today there's like a trend is minimalistic living, tiny homes and, you know, um, Mary condoing your, 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 your home and your, your environment to minimize, get rid of anything that doesn't spark joy. And that's always a good thing. Always good to, to, be, to be a little bit more on the minim- minimalistic side. But the reality is we have a lot of stuff. So if we had to move out all of our stuff every time there was a suspected lesion of Tzorat in our homes, what I'm saying is I'm applying like home, homes today to the laws of, of, of yesteryear, I think it would be a very difficult situation. You have to move out all your stuff before the coin arrives. It's going to take, take days to move out all your stuff. It's going to be, very, but back in the day, how much stuff did they have? Now, it's very convenient for me to say that because I have no idea what life was like 3,300 years ago. I wasn't there. But I would imagine that they probably had a few less possessions than we have today. They probably had less possessions, more sustainable possessions, things that lasted longer or whatever it was. And, and it just, they lived probably a little bit more minimalistically, which means when the Torah says, clear out the house before the coin arrives, it's probably a little bit easier to do that then than it would be today. But today we don't have surrounding homes anyway, so I guess we're safe. Back inside. So the Torah says, you call the Kohen, you get rid of all your stuff, and then the Kohen, verse 37, then he shall look at the lesion. And that means, again, the lesion, not in the person, not in the clothing, this is on the home, on the house itself. Now, if the lesion in the walls of the house, if the lesion consists of, a, of dark green or dark red, sunken-looking stains, so it looks dark green or dark red, and it looks like it's sunken in, to the wall, appearing as if deeper than the wall, okay, if that's what's going on, then the Kohen shall go out of the house to the entrance of the house. So then he walks out and he shall quarantine the house for seven days. Quarantining the house means, (laughs) you're not moving the house. Quarantining the house means no one goes in, no one goes out. Well, I guess more importantly, no one goes in the house. That's it. No one goes in. The house remains alone and empty for seven days. While giving seven days for either the lesion to to expand or contract, then the Kohen shall return on the seventh day to look at the house. Now, if the lesion is spread in the walls of the house, so if it's getting bigger, then the Kohen shall order that they remove the stones upon which the lesion is found, and they shall cast them away outside the city to an unclean place. You literally remove the stones that have the lesion. In other words, this thing... Looks like it's live and active tzarat. We got to get rid of these stones. And what do you do with them? You remove them outside, outside, totally outside the residential area to an unclean place. Makam Tameh. And he, the Kohen, shall scrape out the house from the inside. I don't know if the Kohen or somebody else, but somebody shall scrape out the house from the inside all around. And they shall pour out the mortar dust from what they scraped outside the city into an unclean place. Aha. Take a look at what you do here. You took away the the stones. But the mortar remains. Right? You took out the stones, but there's like, you know, the cement and the mortar. So you got to scrape all that stuff. And the mortar dust that you scraped, 
that also gets removed outside the city to an unclean place. You take out the stones, you scrape out the mortar, and everything goes. Everything is out because that's where the Tzarat lesion was. And they shall take other stones, new stones, and bring them instead of those stones. And he shall take other mortar dust and plaster the house. Basically, to clarify once again, what you're doing is the co- person sees this discoloration in the walls of the home, calls the Kohen before the Kohen arrives, clears out all the stuff, the Kohen comes. If the Kohen sees that it's red or green and it looks deeper, sunken into the walls, that is a red flag. Every, no one goes in the house for seven days. Let's wait seven days, comes back, and it's spread. Gewalt. We got a problem here. Wherever the tzarat is, wherever these uh, discolorations are, the spots, the blotches, the spot, whatever, you remove those stones, scrape out the mortar, everything goes outside the camp to an unclean place. Then you replace the stones with fresh, clean stones and fresh, clean mortar. That was verse 42. Verse, verse 43. Okay, so now so far so good. It sounds like you took care of the situation and all is good. And the Torah says, if the lesion returns, I really would say but. I don't know if it's a but. All right, but or and, whatever. If the lesion returns and erupts in the house after he had removed the stones that, have, that were afflicted with the tzarat, and after the house had been scraped around, and after it had been replastered, if it still erupts a second time, then the Kohen shall come and look at it. Now, if the lesion in the house has spread, it is a malignant tzarat in the house, it is unclean, and at that point, you're done. He shall demolish the house, its stones, its wood, and all the mortar dust of the house, and he shall take them, everything, outside the city, to an unclean place. There you go. So there are different steps when it comes to a house that has suspected Sarat. Again, starting from the top, it looks like a lesion of dark green or dark red, sunken in deeper than the walls. You, so first of all, so, so the first thing you do, sorry, first thing you do is you clear out everything from the house. You call the, the Kohen comes, and if he sees that, then he quarantines the house. No one goes in for seven days. On the seventh day, if it's spread, you remove those stones, scrape out the mortar, replace the stones, replace the mortar, and then you wait and see. If it spreads again, in other words, if it starts again, it's malignant, and you you have to actually knock down the house and take out everything. Got to just destroy the house, and you take everything outside the camp into that unclean place. Demolish. Let's continue verse 46. And anyone entering the house during all the days of its quarantine. Remember the Kohen says, oh, he puts the the Kohen Sarat tape around the the crime scene, so to speak, of this house and says no one should go in. What happens if you do go in? Well, you become impure. That person shall become unclean until the evening. And whoever lies down in the house shall immerse his garments. And whoever eats in the house shall immerse his garments. But if the Kohen comes and comes again and looks at the lesion, oh, now let's continue the narrative. So what happens if the Kohen shows up? He sees the lesion of green or red. He sees that it looks looks deeper than the walls of the house that's sunken in. He then quarantines the house for seven days. And then he comes back 
And behold, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then it spreads. So you take out, it's spread after the seven days. So you take out the stones. And then you wait again and see, but if the lesion, if the coin comes again, comes and comes again, and looks at the lesion, and behold, the lesion did not spread in the house after the house has been plastered. So you put in the new stones. You put in the new plaster. And it didn't spread. Ah, now we're good. The coin shall pronounce the house clean because the lesion has healed. There you go. It's basically two scenarios. I mean, there's more than two scenarios, but like two general big scenarios. The Kohen, in, in both scenarios, it starts off the same way. The Kohen comes, he sees the green and red lesions, green or red lesions. He declares this place needing to be quarantined. He comes back. It looks like it's spread. So he says, you got to remove the stones. You got to replace them with new stones, remove the mortar, replace it with new mortar. Then what? Now we have two divergent paths. In, in scenario A, the lesion erupts again. In that scenario, you have to demolish the house and get rid of it. In scenario B, the coin comes back again to look at it, and the lesion has not re-erupted. There's no lesion, there's no discoloration, it's finished. At that point, we say that the lesion is healed and all is good. The tzarat is finished. Now, if that's the case, and you didn't have to knock down the house because it healed, so now you have to do, you have to continue the cleansing process. So here the Torah tells us exactly what that is. Verse 49. To ritually, clean, to ritually cleanse the house. He shall take, as we had before with the individual who has Sarat, he shall take two birds, a cedar stick, a, crimson, a strip of crimson wool, and hyssop. So again, this should sound familiar. Beginning of this week's Torah portion, Mitzorah talked about this process. You take the two birds, the cedar stick, strip of crimson wool, and hyssop, and you do the process to heal from tzarat. So he shall, and again, this healing from tzarat is only after it's run its course and it's done. So whether it's a person who's healed completely in quarantine and now is able to, after having been banished, and now is ready to come back into the camp, or whether it's a house that healed after you removed the stones and replaced them with new stones and replaced the mortar as well. In both cases, either scenario, you do the same ritual. And again, same idea. You shall slaughter one bird into an earthenware vessel over spring water. So you take an earthenware vessel, you put spring water into it, you slaughter the bird on, into that water, the blood drips into the water, and he shall take the cedar stick, the hyssop, and the strip of crimson wool, and the live bird. So these three are tied together in one bundle, and then you hold the bird, and he shall dip them. The bird with the other items into the blood of the slaughtered bird and into the spring water, into that mixture, and sprinkle toward the house seven times. And again, yes, it sounds very strange, and there's nothing that I can really say to make it sound less strange. I mean, I, we could talk about the deeper significance of the birds and the cedar and the hyssop and the crimson wool, which we've done, but it's still, you know, it's still, it still is what it is. And what it is, is you're taking two, you're taking cedar stick, hyssop, and crimson wool tied together, and a live bird dipping that into the, the bloody water in the earthenware vessel, and then sprinkling it toward the house seven times. And thus, verse 52, and he shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, the spring water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the strip of crimson wool. All of those elements and ingredients conspire together, conspire in a good way to cleanse the house. So now you have 
the blood of the bird that was sacrificed, the spring water, the live bird that's dipped into that along with the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the strip of crimson wool, all sprinkled now toward the house, and that cleanses the house. He shall then send away the live bird outside the city onto the open field like we did before. He shall thus effect atonement for the house, and it will be clean. And that is how one um, purifies and cleanses the house that had Tzarat. Okay, questions, comments, jump right in. I mean, it's, it's clear now how the sprinkling takes place. It's definitely like that. <laughs> Towards the house. Yeah, dipped in and just, you know, kind of like uh, sprinkled like that. Exactly. All right. So now, what was again the, the symbolism of slaughtering one bird? Uh, yeah, so the birds represent the chatter, the, the twittering, the, the tweeting, the chatter. And the message is that we can use the chatter for good or for bad. Here's what bad looks like. And, and, and the, the slaughter bird symbolizes the energy being pulled out of that bird, right? The blood, the slaughter, the, the blood dripping out is the energy, the passion from negative speech patterns. And then the, the bird that's sent away is after, after we stop, when we stop speaking ill of others, then we can really our language can soar, our communication can soar and be healthy and holy and, and uplifting. And that's the live bird that's flying upon the open field, um, which is, I think, a really beautiful, beautiful yeah. imagery. So I read the, the Jules, you know, uh, article, and that's oh, yeah. similar. So, so the, the idea that we can use our words like Jules. Nice. Right? Nice. <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. So let's take a look at Rashi, because Rashi has a lot to say on this. And it's going to open up an absolute treasure. Here we go. Rashi says, on the word, I will place a lesion of Tzara when you enter the land of Canaan. Um, literally, I will give. This is good news. Rashi says, this is good news for them that lesions of Tzara will come upon them. Why? Because the Amorites, the people who lived in the land of Israel before the Jews, the Amorites had hidden away treasures of gold inside the walls of their houses during the entire 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert. They had been hiding, you know, this is before bank accounts and cryptocurrency wallets and all that stuff. So where, what did they do with their treasures? They hid them in the walls of the houses during the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert. And through the lesion, he will demolish the house and find them. Boom. This is unbelievable. This comes from the Midrash, Vayikarab, Tarkhanim. Basically, if you look at the verses, the Torah says, When you enter the land of Canaan, I will give you Tzarat. Sounds like a promise. Not like if you do something wrong, then you'll be punished with Tzara. No, it's like you go into the land of Israel, I'll give you Tzarat. It's a good thing. God is saying, I'll give it. Give. Give is usually like a good thing, right? So I'll give you Tzarat. So yeah, the measure says it was a good thing because through Tzarat, they had to demolish the stones of the home. And when you but, demolish the stones, then you find the treasure that's in there. People were hurt though through the Tzarat. So here's the deal. What we see here is something phenomenal. And that is that the treasure can be found even when we make a mistake. Even when we make a mistake and do something that hurts ourselves or hurts others. Or hurts ourselves and hurts others. There is still a treasure to be found at the end of, or still a silver lining of that cloud. A person might say, when God brings me challenge, I can believe that there's some silver lining. But if I myself messed up, what kind of silver lining? I messed up. Straight up, I caused harm. I caused havoc. 
What kind of silver lining? The Torah says, no. Even when you and I cause havoc, there's still an upside. There's still a treasure. It doesn't mean that we're allowed to cause the havoc to get the treasure. That would be not right at all. But having caused havoc, we believe that there's some sort of treasure, some sort of upside, some sort of blessing that can come through that negativity. This is the power of teshuva. Spoken in other, in other terms is the power of tshuva. What is tshuva? Tshuva means I messed up. Was it good? No, it wasn't good. Can I get back if I work hard enough? And when I get back after working hard enough, I can get back to a place in my relationship with God and the other better than before. If I do the work, there's no shortcut. If I do the work. That's the spiritual treasure that's embedded in sin. Not that we say, oh, so sin is good because it has treasures. No, 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 no. Tzarat is not good because home Tzarat is not good because it led to a treasure. Speaking ill of another is not good because it leads to finding a treasure. No, it's bad. But at the same time, after, after mistake, after making a mistake, the Torah is telling us there is still hope for something positive to come from this. And in that scenario, in ancient Israel, this is literally what happened when they found treasure as a result of the tzarat and removing the, stone, the, the stones of the home. They f- actually found treasure. That's a so big the deal. the Israelites took over existing houses? Oh, absolutely. People were living there for a long time, for centuries or more or longer before the Jews got in. Now remember, did God... did they take it? What? I'm sorry? Go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. Did they take the houses of the Israelis or were they abandoned? Uh, there was a war that went on for many, many years. The books of the prophets detail the, the wars and the battles to conquer the land of Israel. It was not a cakewalk. They didn't just walk in and everyone's like, oh, you guys are here? All right, we've been keeping it warm for you. We're out. We don't really talk about that in the Torah itself. The five books, well, in Deuteronomy, well, first of all, the sin of the spies. Remember the spies that came back and said, there's no way we can conquer these people. They're stronger than us. So that's a a nod to what would have to happen. Um, And then the whole book of Deuteronomy, essentially, a, a, a big piece of it is Moses telling the people, you got this. Hashem is with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What are they not to be afraid of? A move? It's nothing wrong with a move. I mean, inherently. It's not about the move. It's about the, it's about the fighting. It's about the war. The wars, the battles. That's, what, that's where the fear could come in. It's like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I don't know if I want to take this on. And I, and, and I, but, but this was the land that they were supposed to conquer. This was... The, and, and spiritually... The land of Canaan is a land of seven, sorry, the land of Canaan actually had seven nations. The Amorites were one of the seven. Um, and they're detailed in the Torah, the seven specific nations that live there. The, um, the mystics tell us that this, the land of seven nations correspond to or symbolizes the heart that, that includes seven attributes. Chesed, Gvura, Netzach. Sorry, Chesed, Gvurat, Teferet, Netzachod, Yesod, Malchot. Seven emotive energies. And the message is that when it comes to conquering our heart, probably also going to be a battle. It's not like the heart just walks away and says, oh, you want to love God today instead of uh, something else? You got it. You can take the love and channel it for something good without a fight. That's not how it works. We have loves for all sorts of unhealthy things. We have passions and desires and temptations that are for the that are for the negative, not for divine purposes. And in order to transform them, convert them to something holy, it takes a battle, an ongoing battle. It's not a one-time deal. 
And it's not a cakewalk. It's not like, oh yeah, they just abandoned ship and now I have love and awe and compassion only for good things. Never happened. Never happened like that. It's going to be a battle. So what I'm saying is there's a parallel in our spiritual service recognizing that to transform the inner landscape, to make our own desires holy, also requires a battle. It's not going to be easy. That was reflected in the physical experience of the Jewish people. They, 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 there was 14 years of battling, conquering, and settling the land. And even after those 14 years, it still went on for decades. Battles and skirmishes. I mean, uh, the, 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 um, the shoftim, the judges, were always battling you know, antagonistic nations that were in the surrounding areas. Um, and even within the land of Israel, within the borders, you had Samson who fought the Philistines, right? Samson, he was fighting the Philistines. Who were the Philistines? The Plishtim, Philistines. They were a nation inside, you know, in, in and around the Holy Land that was battling the Jews for much longer than 14 years. You had King Saul who was fighting, King David who was fighting. It was only in the times of King Solomon, much, much, much later, that finally things rep- um, resembled a semblance of peace. There was finally peace in the land in the times of King Solomon. But it was a long and drawn out, drawn out battle. And we're fighting now. You know, and we're fighting, yeah, there you go, right? What, the Middle East is calm? Are you kidding me, right? Everyone's happy with Israel? Are you kidding me with Jews there? No way. I mean, we would hope, we would love that to be the case, but the reality is, uh, is history repeats itself, right? In fact, the name, I mean, if we want to just be honest, uh, uh, Pelishtim, Philistines, that's the source of the modern term, the modern word, Palestine, pa- Palestine or Palestinians. Now, we also know that the modern Palestinians can't, necessarily, can't trace their lineage back to the ancient Philistines. They don't, they don't resemble that at all. The ancient Philistines didn't practice, um, you know, Islam or, or other, other religions. They were, they were pagan people. Um, whereas, you know, modern Jews still practice Judaism, the same faith as Moses 3,300 years ago. So there's a direct connection that we have. It's not about, you know, I'm, I'm, I just, just to clarify. So yes, there are a, there is a people and there is a thing called, you know, Palestine, Palestinians, but it's not the Palestinian of old. And that's, uh, but yes, there still is, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the, the modern battles, if you will, are not the same players as the ancient battles. I mean, one side is us, us yeah. but there's still there's still conflict. I think that's the point. There's still conflict. The whole idea that Palestine became a name that was something. I'm trying to remember who did that. One of the one of the empires that took over Judea, Israel, kind of renamed it Palestine just to like rub it into the Jewish people that the temple was destroyed, etc. And like, aha, see, it's now the Philistines again. Even though the Philistines weren't living there, they, they ceased to exist as a functioning nation with an identity. Um, nonetheless, that's where that came from. Anyway, a little bit of a history lesson. In this. Just one final thought. So we were just like dispersed, just gradually, you know, after the destruction of the temple. Well, it happened in stages, yeah. First in of all, stages. there were two temples, and then and it, it happened gradually. With the first temple, for right. sure, it happened gradually. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom got picked off 
tribe by tribe, region by region. They were like conquered and, and, and moved out, dispersed around the lands, exiled. And then it finally hit the southern kingdom where the temple was, and that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, and then 70 years later, the temple was rebuilt, and then it lasted for another 420 years until the Romans destroyed it. When the Romans destroyed the second temple, that really was, that really was a, I mean, it wasn't that gradual. It was kind of like, okay. I mean, there were still places in Israel where Jews lived, there was a, a Jewish academy that one of the rabbis was able to secure in, uh, in Yavne, a city called Yavne. And then there was, of course, you know, places of resistance, you know, in the decades that followed, places that resisted the Roman um, uh, authority and autonomy. So anyway, complicated history. Complicated We've history. got it rough. <laughs> yeah, it has not been easy. I think that's the summary. But to circle back to the treasure... Rashi, quoting from the Medrash, again, this is an incredible point, that when they went through this process of removing the stones, they found treasure. Now, did it happen 100% of the time? 75, 50, 25, 10%? I have no idea how often this was. But it sounds like it was something that was a reasonable possibility, that when you got Sarat in the house, you might just find the treasure. And the message there, again, the metaphoric message, is... Not just the stuff that God does to us has a treasure. But even the stuff that we do to ourselves or we do to others, the mistakes we make. We chose to make a mistake. So a person might say, so what's the the redeeming quality? There's no redeeming quality. I made a mistake. Whoops. I, I messed up. No, even there you can find a treasure. Even there you can find a way to, to become stronger and to, to gain from mistakes. We don't do the mistake to gain. That's a mistake. It's that's, that's the biggest mistake. If I think I'm going to mess up, it's like... So, right, there could be a disagreement that leads to, you know, in a relationship, a disagreement, you know, uh, some tension that leads to a breakthrough. But no one would ever say I'm going to intentionally cause conflict in my relationship so that I can get to a breakthrough. That would be reckless. That would be reckless. But if conflict happens, could it lead to strengthening in the relationship? Absolutely. Should it? Hopefully. Does it always? No. But, but perhaps one could you know, work hard to get to that place. And that's the message here. There's, we should never be despondent. That, oh, this is wholly bad and wholly evil and completely wrong. I mean, wholly like W-H-O-L, completely bad, completely evil. And there's no redeem, redeeming factor here. Even in Sarat of Homes, you could still find a treasure, perhaps. Or not perhaps, definitely, depending on what, how, I, how often it happened. Okay, so back inside, that was just the first Rashi. Okay, a lot to talk about. Next... So when you approach the Kohen, you say something like a lesion has appeared to me in the house. Very tentative language. Rashi says, even a Torah scholar who knows that it is definitely a lesion of Tzarat shall not make his statement using a decisive expression, saying a lesion has appeared to me. But something like a lesion has appeared to me out of respect for the Kohen who is to make the decision. So be tentative. Let the Kohen check it out. Don't be the one. I know what it is. I just need you to like check that box. 
Now, before the Kohen comes, Rashi clarifies, since as long as the Kohen has not yet become involved with the house in question, the law of uncleanliness, of uncleanness does not yet apply to it. As long as the Kohen does not check out the house and, and deem it unfit or unclean, everything is kosher still. So that's why you got to clean out the house from all the stuff. For if they, you got to remove everything in the house. For if they do not clear it out and the Kohen comes and sees the lesion, the house will have to be quarantined and everything inside it will become unclean. Now, for what objects did the Torah have consideration? What is the Torah trying to spare? If it was upon vessels that require immersion in a mikvah to cleanse them, then instead of having them removed, let them immerse them in mikvah and they will become clean. So what's the problem? In other words, if the issue is you'll have to put everything in a mikvah, all right, so why should I schlep everything out into the street and then bring it back in? Let me just leave it there and then move, take it to mikvah once it's done. And if it was upon food and drink, then instead of removing them, let them become unclean and he can eat them during this period of uncleanness. Hence, the Torah's consideration only for earthenware vessels, which cannot be cleansed by immersion in mikvah, and would thus undergo permanent damage if they became unclean because you would have to break them. So, the Torah, the whole thing of removing the vessels is only for earthenware vessels that can never be cleansed. All right. All right. You take away the stones. When you remove the stones after the lesion spreads the first time, you take away the stones to an unclean place, Rashi says, a place where clean things are not used. This verse teaches us that these unclean stones contaminate the place as long as they are there. If they are in a place, it makes that place impure, and therefore you don't want anything around. Scraped out. Okay, inside the lesion. All right, Rashi. As I explained before, the Torah says, scrape the plaster all around. It sounds like around the house. Rashi says, no, around the lesion. It's only that area of the stone that was afflicted with the lesion of Tzorat. In Midrash Torah Kohanim, it is thus expounded, namely that he shall scrape out the plaster surrounding the afflicted stones. Not all the stones, just the afflicted stones. They scraped an edge. They scrape off around the edge of the lesions. Good. All right. Um... Okay, grammatical Rashi's, we're going to skip. Let's see. Um, interesting. How long? The Kohen looks at the house. He sees the, the, the lesion, quarantines it for seven days, comes back. It's spread. At this point, you remove the stones, replace them with new stones, and then if the lesion comes back, then you got to demolish the whole house. But how long? How long does the coin come back? So one might think that if you re if you return on that same day, it would be deemed unclean. Scripture therefore states the coin shall return. The same term as our verse, namely, and if the lesion returns, just as the return of the coin mentioned here is at the end of a week, seven days, so is the return of the lesion mentioned here at the end of a week. So it has to come back, kind of by the end of the, it has to come out, come back and be around seven days later. Then at that point, it is. No good. All right. Uh, Rashi explains. Give me. A, oh, this is a long Rashi. Um, whoa. This is a huge Rashi. It's a wall of Rashi. I don't think that we are going to do this inside. Okay. I'm hoping 
that we got the we got the insight, we understand the content, and uh, we're not missing too much over here. Okay. All right, somebody who enters the house during the days of quarantine becomes unclean. However, Rashi says, not someone entering the house during the days that he scrapes off the lesion, during which time the house does not defile those who enter it until the quarantine period begins. So if you, if you quarantine the house and then it's spread and then you remove stones and you scrape the plaster and then you wait it again, if somebody enters the house at that stage, after it's been cleaned up, then they don't become impure. But if so, if, if this is so, one might think that if the lesion is pronounced definitely unclean and the house is slated for demolition, that if the owner disregards the order to demolish the house but instead removes the unclean stones and scrapes off its lesion, that this case is also excluded, that this house should also not defile those entering. And what if somebody says, you know what, I don't care. I don't care what it says. So the Kohen came back, saw that it spread, removed the stones, put in new stones, scraped the plaster, put in new plaster, came back and it spread again or it started again. A person says, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to remove these stones again a second time and put in new stones. And now somebody enters the house. So what happens? We might think that they're, that they're clean because it's not quarantine. So scripture therefore says during all the days in which, is, in which the seemingly superfluous word all comes to include this case, that since this house is unclean and must be demolished, it's slated for demolition, even though the person is trying to outsmart the system. But since it was already slated for demolition, it will always defile those who enter it, even if right now there's nothing to see because the guy on his own took out the stones again and put in new stones. It doesn't matter. The house will defile. Um, anyone entering the house shall become unclean until evening, since no mention of immersing garments is made here. Scripture teaches us that the one who enters the house does not defile his garments. It does not touch the garments. One might think that even if he remained in the house for the time of Kedeachil's Prast, again, one might think That even if he remained in the house for the time, the length of time it takes someone to eat an average meal, that his garments would also remain undefiled. Ah, so if you st if you go in there and you hang around for a little while, you eat, you eat like time that you would eat a meal. That's it. Scripture therefore says, one who eats in the house shall immerse his garments. We only know if one eats that his garments become unclean. How do we know that if someone lies down in the house, his garments become unclean? Therefore, Scripture says, and whoever lies down in the house shall immerse his garments. Now, I only know that this law applies to someone who either eats or lies down. How do I know that this law applies to someone who did not eat or lie down in the house, but spent a certain amount of time there? Scripture therefore states, shall immerse, shall immerse, twice. The repetition of the expression includes the case where the person merely stayed in the house, that his garments become unclean. If so, why are eating and lying down mentioned? To give a measurement of time that it takes to eat half a loaf for one who lies down, i.e., only if someone lies down in the house for that period, whose garments become unclean. Basically, 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 it's only if the individual stays in the house the amount of time that it takes to either eat a half a loaf of bread or, uh, yeah, to eat a half a loaf of bread. That is the time period that renders, um, that renders one impure and their garments impure. So here's the deal, um, just to clarify. The house that is under quarantine, you walk into that house, you become impure till evening. You got to go to mikvah. If you stay in the house for a certain amount of time, like a few minutes, 
How long is that? How long does it take to eat a half a loaf of bread? That's a lot of bread. But that means like a meal. I don't know, five minutes, seven minutes. I'm, I'm sure it's quantified in halacha. I just don't remember what, the, what that quantifiable time is. But if you spend that amount of time in the house, then not only are you unclean, your garments, your clothing is also unclean. They also have to be dipped in mikvah, right? You got to go to mikvah with the clothes on. I'm kidding. That's not how they would do it. But you got to also cleanse the garments as well, not just the person, if you are there for that amount of time. All right, back inside. Let's take a look. Um, yeah. Rashi, again, is clarifying the timeline here. This verse comes to teach us about a lesion that has remained... Oh, so if the lesion did not spread, then it's healed and it's all good, and then you do the bird ritual. So Rashi explains, this verse comes to teach us about a lesion that has remained the same throughout both the first and second weeks of quarantine. And what should be done to it? One might think that, the, that it should be pronounced clean, as apparent from the plain meaning of the verse. Scripture concludes the verse with, because the lesion is healed. God says, I deem clean only the lesion that is healed. And healed means only a house which has been scraped and plastered, and the lesion did not recur. But this house, in which the lesion has neither disappeared nor spread, requires removal of the unclean stone, scraping, plastering, and a third week of quarantine. Thus, the following is how our verse is to be understood. So here we go. Here's like how we understand this. But if the Kohen comes and comes again at the end of the second week of quarantine, and behold, the lesion did not spread, you must plaster it, and there is no plastering without removing the unclean stones and scraping. Then after the house has been plastered, the Kohen shall pronounce the house clean if the lesion did not recur at the end of the week of quarantine, because the lesion has, the lesion has healed. But if it recurs, well, we know already what happens then. Scripture has already explained regarding a house with a recurring lesion that requires full-on demolition. Okay, that takes us to the end of today's reading. So, to summarize... To summarize, today we learned about Tzarat of Houses, which is a fascinating topic. I mean, I, I think it's a fascinating topic. Tzarat of Homes. Um, Tzarat of Homes has an interesting protocol. Number one, the Kohen takes a look. First of all, you take your stuff out of that house because you, you don't want to get your stuff stuck inside. Rashi clarified that's essentially mainly for um, earthenware vessels because that would be a problem. You take your stuff out of the house. Then the Kohen comes in and says, oh, yeah, you got a problem. We got to quarantine this bad boy. No one goes in the house uh, for seven days. The Kohen comes back. It's spread. Uh-oh, you got a problem. Got to remove those stones, remove the mortar, restone and replaster it. Great. If it breaks out again, the whole house gets torn down. If it doesn't, if it heals, or if it stays healed and it never recurs and it doesn't come back, good to go. And then what do you do? Then what do you do? You bring the two birds and the cedar and the crimson wool and the hyssop. And you do the slaughtering of the first bird, uh, uh, dropping the blood into water in an earthenware vessel, dipping the cedar, the hyssop, and the strip of crimson wool along with the bird into it, sprinkling it toward the house seven times. And at that point... It's clean. And the message of today, just to reiterate the main theme, at least my takeaway is, the, the silver lining of the cloud, even the cloud that we've created. We created the cloud. Who said there's a silver lining? The Torah said. God said. God wants us to heal from our own mistakes. And God promises that if we do, there might even be treasure to be found there in that situation. So the path of return, the path of correction is always open. And that path indeed is the greatest treasure, the gift that God gives us, the gift of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, etc. Yes, Ray. Hold on, oh, hold on, hold on. You are still, you are muted. Let me ask you to unmute. They do the bird thing today in this day and age. 
Mm-mm. No, no bird ritual because we don't have the um, the tzarat. We don't have that whole thing. That whole when did that stop? Yeah, when did that uh, tzarat only existed back in the day with the, oh, temple. the temples, right? Yeah, because you had to bring sacrifices and offerings. Part of the ritual is like offerings and sacrifices, and that's only done. Ray, what are you saying? You're, you're familiar with something modern, a bird ritual? Someone that did something with two doves. Interesting. A Interesting. Rabbi. I don't know. A relative of mine. Interesting. You know what? Yes. If you if you don't mind, find out a little bit more details. Keep it anonymous, but find out a little bit more details about the scenario okay. and let us know tomorrow. That's a fascinating thing. Yeah, I'm always yeah. I'm always up to learning new bird rituals. I'm kidding. The chicken on Rosh Hashanah has Oh the chicken. Kaparis. Yeah, for sure. Kaparis. We do the we do the swing around the head. That's always a lot of fun. That's always my mother's my mother's mother did it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a place, we do it in Atlanta, there's, you know, there's, uh, if you know the right place to go to, you can find uh, Kaparas, Eve of Yom you Kippur. Can do, you can do money instead. Yeah, money, you could do a fish, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a few different options. Um, but chicken is the tradition, you know, from the shtetl, they, they use chicken. That's right, my grandparents were from the shtetl. Yeah, yes. that's what they, there were chickens around, so of course they used chicken, what right. else are they going to use? They had no money, they had chickens, <laughs> they didn't use money. <laughs> yeah, what do they use, kesef? What kind of kesa? They didn't have any gelt. They had chickens. Chickens were around. They used chickens. And the custom, by the way, just so you know, is you, you don't kill the chicken when you swing it. You, you move the chicken, just to clarify, for those that perhaps are not familiar, because, you know, this is we also put out the audio, and a lot of people listen to this. So you take a chicken, a live chicken, you swing it around your head three times, and you say, This is my kapara, my atonement, this is my exchange, and this is my... Um, also exchange, two different words for exchange. Anyway, basically, this chicken will be slaughtered. As for me, I should live and live a, a, a happy, healthy year. I should have a happy, healthy year of life. That's what we say. That's the prayer. And what happens to the chicken? The chicken is slaughtered. And it's used for food. Donated to tzedakah, to charity. Like um, Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> yeah, but it's not to, for your family meal. It goes actually to charity, to charitable cause. It goes to those in need. So the chicken, yeah, exactly. So the chicken is donated. Exactly, the chicken is donated to a worthy cause. Um, there are some yeshivas that they that they eat from the kaparas chickens because donated to yeshiva is like an educational institute. I mean, it's a nonprofit. It's for a good cause. There's students there that are hungry. You know, it's and uh, reminds me of a story. Rabbi Manus Friedman. You know, prolific uh, speaker, famous author and speaker, and philosopher, Chabad rabbi. So he was once speaking about, you know, how Chabad and the Rebbe is all about, you know, empowerment of women. We live in a society where all where so often women are disempowered. And it's been, you know, as I don't know, I don't have to tell anybody here, everyone knows how challenging it's been in society. Whereas the Rebbe's model is sending out shluchim and shluchais to be co-directors and co-creators of a Chabad house and co-direct, co-inspirational individuals that inspire a community together as a team. And so, you know, and Manus Freeman, Rabbi Manus Freeman was speaking about this and somebody asked him, so what does your wife do? So he said, my wife runs a home for, for unwanted children. And it's, wow, yeah. And then later on he explained, it's my, my kids, no one else wants them. So, uh, <laughs> but. So, do you know have any idea of who the speakers will be for Shabbat in the Heights? I don't know, but it's bound to be 
amazing. I'm sure Manus Freeman, I'm sure Simon Jacobson, I'm sure these guys, all these guys. They all yeah, they live around there. They live in Cranites. Okay. And yeah, they'll want to get back into, you know, it's been two years. Yeah. Oh, they they haven't stopped. Don't worry yeah. about that. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> you go, went to Crown Heights, height of pandemic, there was no pandemic. There was no pandemic. It wasn't uh okay. nope. I was there for a wedding. And I'm all like masking up and all that stuff. Oh, I got to take this phone call. Um, all right, folks, we'll have we'll leave my story for next time. Have a wonderful day. See you tonight. Pesach class boot camp, seven thirty. See you then. Take care, everybody. Bye, guys.